Well, this morning I received a very nice email from our friends uh, Galen and Linda Kostler. They are in the great state of Vermont this morning and wanted to extend greetings to the church family. Um, You should also know that a few days before they left, I asked Galen if I could sneak into one of their suitcases, and that request was denied. So um, that shows you what kind of pull I have. But we miss them and would encourage you to be praying for them as they uh, spend some extended time away on the East Coast. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it is exceedingly rare in our culture for churches to read scripture throughout the service. So I I hope you appreciate uh, what what Jason does and what he brings to the table by reading scripture throughout uh, our worship service. You know, this is a biblical practice. Uh, Paul instructed the young pastor, Timothy, to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to exhortation, and to teaching. And so we take that very seriously at Christ Fellowship, and I'm very grateful to my friend Jason for uh, leading us in that regard. Well, 9-11 was a long time ago, was it not? How many of you remember where you were on 9-11? That was quite a day. A defining moment in American history. The terrorist attacks changed the way that we view a lot in our country. They changed the way we view national security and air travel. Uh, The attacks have even made some people think twice before entering a skyscraper. I know I think twice. The events of September 11th have also prompted over the last 15 or so years many questions about God, the nature of God, and the purposes of God. The Scottish writer Thomas Boston was asking similar questions several hundred years ago when he penned the book, The Crook in the Lot. The crook in the lot seems to be very common for people in our day. For, I'm sure you would agree, that none of us are immune to pain, or suffering, or trials, or adversity, or tribulation. One writer rightly says, quote, This is the uniform message of the Bible. Whether we are talking about suffering that comes from disease, or from calamity, or from persecution, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. God has a good and a wise purpose in all that happens, close quote. Now, the name of our series is a God of Wonders. And in this study together for the next several months, we will continue to learn about the attributes and the plans and the character of Almighty God. Last week, you recall that we learned about the one God. Of course, we are all monotheists. In fact, I, at least I hope you're all monotheists, that you believe in one God. But that one God reveals himself, you recall, in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. The three members of the Godhead, the three members of the Trinity, are co-equal and co-eternal. Very important reality that we discovered last week. Well, this week, the title of the message is... The crook in the lot. And let me just say personally that if you were here this morning 
That you, if you have come with a burden, that if you have come and you are discouraged, that if you are sad or lonely or heartbroken or suffering, or perhaps you're even struggling with some measure of depression, my prayer this morning is that as we open the Word of God, as we study it together, then as you leave later today, that you would leave encouraged that you would leave strengthened, that you would leave edified. For the message is designed to really serve as uh, handrails, if you will. Handrails in the Christian life. I remember watching a spy movie several months ago about uh, a young man in the military who was injured. And he was basically uh, cut to the point where he couldn't walk anymore. And so he walked through that period of rehabilitation. And as you know, that when a, a person walks through the period of rehabilitation, they come to the point where they, they grab the handrails, and it is the handrails that provide that life-saving support so the person doesn't fall on his or her face. The sermon this morning is designed to, to be a sort of uh, a set of handrails for you as you cling to the truth of God's Word. Let me also say this. That we are moving this morning into the deep end of the pool. You know, we talk about the Word of God as we talk about studying theology. From time to time, we will find ourselves in the deep end of the pool. And for me, it is rather challenging as we come together in the so-called deep end of the pool and discover the deep truths about God. And sometimes people are tempted to run away from the deep end of the pool. Sometimes people are tempted to cast stones into the deep end of the pool. Sometimes people tend to criticize anyone who would have the courage to go into the deep end of the pool. But I trust as we come together as the people of God that you would embrace the truths that we will learn about together in the deep end of the pool. Here's the question I want to pose this morning. How should we respond to God when there is a crook in the lot? How should we respond to God when suffering seizes our souls? You know, many of you are here this morning, you say, I can't say that I'm really going through a period of suffering or adversity right now. If that's you, and that would be many of you, I would encourage you to Listen carefully to what the Word of God would reveal today because oftentimes a message like this will prepare you for a season of suffering. For those of the rest of you who say, yes, Pastor, I, I, I confess that I am going through a very difficult season in my life right now. My prayer for you is this, that this, again, would encourage you, that this would bring life into your soul, that it would, that would enable you to walk through a period of suffering with, with courage, with boldness, and with God-centered resolve. So how should we respond when pain, suffering, or adversity touches our lives? Would you turn with me in God's Word to the book of Ecclesiastes? If you're not already there and you're struggling to find this little book... If you would open your Bible to about the middle, you'll probably find the Psalms or the Proverbs. Move one book past Proverbs and you will bump into the book of Ecclesiastes. And turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And would you stand with me out of respect for the authority of God's Word? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 
verses 13 and 14. King Solomon says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Oh God, uh, each of us come this morning with a different set of circumstances. Uh, but my prayer is especially uh, geared to those who find themselves in a season of suffering, in a moment of adversity, whether it be a few days or a few weeks or a few months or even suffering that they have been enduring for years. I pray that your word would breathe life into their souls, that your word would prompt encouragement and boldness and courage. And I pray, God, is that as we come, as we find ourselves in the deep end of the pool, that we would embrace the truth that is presented in your word. We give you the glory in advance and ask that you would do great things here at Christ Fellowship on this day. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. How should we respond when suffering seizes our souls? I would suggest a twofold answer this morning. The outline of the sermon will be exceedingly simple, and I, I pray that you'll be able to follow along. The first part of the answer to the question we have posed is this. In order to respond properly to God when we face that season of suffering, in order to respond properly to God when we find ourselves at the point where we're at the crook in the lot, we need to first of all consider the sovereign God. And you say, what does that mean to consider the sovereign God? Well, look at verse 13. This word is taken directly from the text. Consider, Solomon says, the work of God. That word consider means to, to see or to look or to regard. It means to, to gaze at something and give that particular something or someone a special amount of attention. And so we do what God's word instructs, do we not? We consider the sovereign God. I want to suggest to you this morning that when it comes to considering the sovereign God, at least three things need to happen in our hearts and in our minds. The first thing we do to consider the sovereign God is we acknowledge his greatness. We begin by acknowledging the greatness of God. What does it mean to acknowledge the greatness of God? Well, we first of all, we gaze at his works. We gaze at his works. First Chronicles chapter 16 says this, Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgment he pronounced. And so you see, as we gaze at the works of God, really what we're doing is we're grabbing onto those handrails. As we struggle with suffering and adversity, as pain seizes us by our throats, we begin by saying, God, I choose to consider you in all of your sovereignty. And the way I do that, I acknowledge your greatness by gazing at your works. First Chronicles 16, verse 24 and 25 does just that. Declare his glory among the nations. 
his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. How uh, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. You see what the psalmist is doing here. He is, is gazing at the works of God. I would also challenge you that as you acknowledge God's greatness, to not only gaze at his works, but to gaze at his ways. We gaze at his ways. I want to remind you that, that God, much to the chagrin of many in contemporary culture, including some in the church, God has a passion for his glory. If I asked you the question, what is the most important reality in the universe? I hope there would be a resounding echo here at Christ Fellowship. And the answer would be God is the most important thing in the universe. God is the most important truth in the universe. God is the most important person in the universe. And so God has a passion for his glory. Isaiah 55 Verse 9 says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Romans chapter 11, Lord willing, down the road, we will study the book of Romans together. And you'll recall that there is a, a twofold break in the book of Romans that we've referred to a few times in, in prior sermons. Sixteen chapters. The first 11 chapters are devoted to theology. Theology. Chapters 12 through 16 are devoted to practical application. And so as Paul begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and moves all the way to chapter 11, verse 36, he, he waxes eloquent as we learn about the sinfulness of man, as we learn about the glory of God, as we learn about salvation that we receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so he, he continues to pour on the theology. And we get to the end of chapter 11, verse 36. And in this, this crescendo statement, Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you can almost sense the collective sigh of Paul. Chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, you ask the question, what is it there for? I'll tell you the reason it's there, because in chapter 1 through chapter 11, verse 36, Paul has been echoing about the great truths that concern the glory of God. And so as we acknowledge the greatness of God, we gaze at his works, we gaze at his ways, but thirdly, we gaze at his worth. We gaze at his worth. In Exodus chapter 15, one of my favorite verses in all of Exodus, we read these words in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, Awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders. We will come back to that verse as we continue our study in the attributes of God. 
So as we consider this study together, as we come together in this series, we will week after week have an opportunity to do what I'm, I'm encouraging us to do. And that is to acknowledge the greatness of Almighty God by gazing at His works, by gazing at His ways, and by gazing at His worth. But there's something else we must do in order to consider the sovereign God. We, number one, acknowledge His greatness, but number two, we must make an admission. There is something we must admit. And so far in this study this morning, this this is easy to digest, is it not? To to acknowledge the, the greatness and the glory of Almighty God, that's something that is, is easy for us to do. It's something that's enjoyable. Now this is where it gets more difficult and more challenging. We make an admission. We admit that God does the bending. Look again at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. Now, Scripture teaches very clearly that God has an overarching plan for his creation, and that plan for creation was settled in eternity past. That plan for creation was settled in eternity past, and the sovereign plan that I'm referring to is referred to as an eternal decree. An eternal decree. And the decree of God may be defined as his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. So says the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Let me read that one more time if you're taking notes. The definition of the decree of God is as follows. It's his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. Theology professor J. Carl Laney, who I believe is still teaching at Western Seminary in Portland, says it this way, God's decree is absolute and unchangeable. God's decree has the the backing and support of his infinite power. Because he is God, he decrees what will be accomplished. And so as we make this admission, as, as we consent, as we agree with what King Solomon has written in God's word, and let me remind you that the word of God is authoritative. The Word of God is infallible. The Word of God is inerrant. The Word of God binds our conscience. The Word of God is altogether true. And so it says here, who can make straight what he has made crooked? I want to take a few minutes to unpack in greater detail the the details of the eternal decree. The the eternal decree. Number one, and we see this in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that God decrees everything that comes to pass. If you want to get into an interesting discussion with anyone, believer or unbeliever, you put that statement on a piece of paper and lay it on the table. And I can guarantee you that you will have a discussion that may last the rest of the day. That God 
decrees whatsoever comes to pass. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, we read these words. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. You say, Pastor, I I don't like that very much. Now, I want to challenge you, as a good attorney will do in the courtroom, he always anticipates objections to a proposition. And as after serving for almost 25 years as a pastor and talking much and preaching and teaching much about the eternal decree, I have, I have heard the, the arguments that are set forth. And let me challenge those arguments with one brief thought. I want you to imagine, and this is a stretch, but I want you to imagine that God does not decree whatsoever comes to pass. And I want, I want that to settle in for you. Because you see, if God doesn't decree everything that comes to pass, we live in a world, we live in a universe that is spinning out of control. That is to say, if God just lets the creatures do whatever they want to do apart from his sovereign decree, and he has no idea what the future holds, I submit to you that we're in huge trouble. You see, what I receive oftentimes with objections to the eternal decree is questions like, what about free will, which we don't have time to discover more about this morning? Or that just doesn't seem right. But remember where we would be if we lived in a world where God didn't decree everything that comes to pass. We would be in a world of hurt. The word of God authenticates this statement. In Proverbs 16, 4, we read that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. In Exodus 4, verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And of course, we know the story of God's servant, Job. We know that Job lost everyone in his family except a wife who challenged him to curse God and die. You remember she said, are you still holding fast to your integrity? So he loses his family, save his wife. He loses his livestock. He loses his, his house, his ranch, his properties. And then we read in Job 42 at the end of the book that Job's brothers and sisters comforted and consoled him for all the trouble that the Lord brought upon him. There's a shocker. There's a shocker. You don't think that God is sovereignly behind these things in the life of Job, but when his brothers and sisters comfort him, we see that It is the Lord who brings these things into our lives. And so recognize that God decrees everything that comes to pass. And let me encourage you to be comforted by that assertion. Number two, I want you to see based on this passage that it is God who bends in order to advance his glory. 
I want to show you an example of this bending in the book of Exodus. Once again, if you turn to Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. And while we don't have a whole lot of time this morning, I want to show you a, a progression of verses that indicates that God is sovereignly in control of every episode in his universe. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. To be very simplistic, we can say it this way. Pharaoh was the bad guy. He was the bad guy. He was the wicked man in this story. And here's what we learn. Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But, God says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. You might scratch your head along with me and say, why would God harden the heart of Pharaoh? Turn over to Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. We see this truth again. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders... In the land of Egypt. Then flip to Exodus chapter 12 and look with me at verse 36. You get the gist that God is sovereignly in control over this wicked man's heart. Exodus chapter 12, verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked and they plundered the Egyptians. I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that God gets his way through the free agency of both Israel and the Egyptians. Now look over at Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. And this is where it gets very interesting. And this is the, what I call the link here that emerges in Scripture. In Exodus 14, 4, once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, that is Israel. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. Stop there. You asked earlier, and I asked with you, why would God harden the heart of Pharaoh? And here we receive a penetrating answer. The answer is, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Look at verse 17 and 18. Once again, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through the chariots and his horsemen. Notice, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through who? Pharaoh. Here is this wicked man who God comes into the picture and hardens his heart sovereignly. Why does he do it? Because ultimately he wants Egypt to know that he is the God of the universe. And so God bends in this particular case in order to advance his glory. Number three, I want you to see with me that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians? And in the book of Ephesians, we have one sentence 
And it is a a run-on sentence, as my English teacher used to say, that runs from verse 1 all the way to verse 14. You say, I see some periods in there, Pastor. What, what What are you saying here? In the Greek, we have one sentence. And in verse 11, something very, or I should say 1 through 10. In verse 11, we read this. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, we read that, Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I hope this morning it brings you incredible comfort to read these words in Ephesians chapter 1, that the great God of the universe works all things according to the counsel of his will. And why does he do it that way? He does it first and foremost for his glory, but he also does it for your good and my good. And if you're like me, you look at some of the pain and the suffering, whether it's in the world or whether it's in your personal life, and you have no idea how to put the pieces together. I remember a dear godly woman who shared with me the story of of quilt making one time. I know some of you ladies make beautiful quilts. Have you ever looked at the back of a quilt? Please don't be offended if you are a quilt maker, but the back of a quilt is a jumbled, mumbled Mess of yarn. You know what I mean. You look at the back of that quilt and you say, it's not very beautiful. And it's kind of like that in life, isn't it? As we walk through periods of suffering and adversity and trials, and we say, God, why? God, I don't understand what you're doing. And your life is like that jumbled, mumbled yarn on the back of that quilt. But we all know what happens when you turn the quilt over. You see a beautiful display of handiwork. And I would submit to you that when we get to the end of the story, that we stand together on the new earth in glorified bodies, that we will all be able to look back and see how God put all the strands of thread together. While in the short run, we don't understand how it all works out. If I told you stories... Not only about my own personal life and what I have endured and my family has endured, but about story after story after story in pastoral ministry. I I thought of a few episodes as I prepared to preach this message. And quite frankly, they are so painful. I'm not in any condition to even share those stories with you. Stories that happened even 20 or 25 years ago. Stories that I can remember them like they happened yesterday. The the hair on my arms will stand on end. Sweat begins to come from my brow as I think about these stories. And to this day, as I think about those painful episodes, I still, I still don't understand how all the pieces work together. But I must bank on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Now, there's another question that surfaces, which will lead to the fourth proposition. And this is very important to understand that while God ordains literally everything that comes to pass, we recognize that God is not, however, the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. My friend Bruce Ware puts it this way. God works through evil people. If we were to stop right there, boy, that would lead to several discussions, would it not? That God works through men like Saddam Hussein. He works through men like Joseph Stalin. He works through men like Adolf Hitler. It's hard to believe, but he works through evil people. Bruce continues, and he uses evil decisions and actions. But God never, never, never himself does evil. God ordains evil, uses evil, and accomplishes infinitely good purposes through evil, but he never does evil. Far be it from me, or far be it from you, to ever utter the words that God creates or ordains evil. For God is not the author of evil. Number five relates to the fourth proposition, and that is that, as Bruce says, God uses, however, he uses evil for a good purpose. And you say, this is where I must go into attorney mode once again. You say, prove it. You say, you have no idea what I've been through. You have no idea what I'm going through. You prove it that God uses evil for a good purpose. You think about the Holocaust. You think about 9-11. You think about the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of babies that are tortured in this country due to abortion doctors. You say, how is it that God uses evil for a good purpose? The chief evidence is found in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 2, verse 23, we see that this Jesus, delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Dr. Ware says it this way, and I can remember the day he shared this in a message, and it has stuck with me for years, that... God, God is praiseworthy for ordaining these things. God is praiseworthy for ordaining the cross of his son. But the sinners who put him on the cross, they are blameworthy. The sinners who put Jesus on the cross are blameworthy but God is praiseworthy for decreeing the, the most hideous, evil, wicked event in all of human history. For the only innocent man to walk planet earth, the only innocent man was unjustly crucified. And so God takes this horrible evil. And what does he do? He brings good out of evil. It is because of the cross work of Jesus Christ that we sit as free men and women. It is because of the cross work of Jesus Christ, that horrendous act of evil that was hoisted on him. 
as he was placed on that wooden cross, that you and I can say, we stand justified by grace alone through faith alone. John Frame puts it this way, evil is not a refutation of God's good purposes for creation or of his love for his people. He says the evil of this world serves God's long-term purpose to glorify himself and to do good for his people. And so together as God's people, we come to the place where we acknowledge the greatness of God. We come to the place where we admit, as verse 13 says, that it is God alone who does the bending. But there's a third way that we consider the sovereign God. And that is we agree to something. We agree to something. And we read this in verse 13. No one can straighten what God has bent. I love Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Some of you, many of you know that I have a bit of a bone to pick with the free will crowd. Have you figured that one out? I hear it all the time. What about free will? What about free will? I'm starting to think it's a country song. What about free will? What about free will? The answer? Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's will that prevails. It is the Lord's will who prevails. Why? No one can straighten what God has bent. That is to say, the purposes of God can never be thwarted. They can never be thwarted. We read that earlier from the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar. A man who placed high, had a high opinion of himself. A man who, if he wrote a country song, it would be called Me, Myself, and I. He thought he was the man. And so God sent him out to pasture and his fingernails grew long and his hair grew long. And he became a miserable wretch out in the field and he behaved much as a wild animal. And he came to this place where his sanity, where his reason returned to him. His rationality returned and he said, he does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah fourteen twenty seven says, for the Lord of hosts has purpose and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? And I love at the end of Job chapter 42. And you can just think in your mind's eye all that Job went through from his his wife who urged him to curse God and die all the way through that story when he had three counselors who were not very good counselors for a certain season in his life. And he gets to chapter 42 and Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Here's the response I hear all the time. But what about free will? Answer, no plan of God can be thwarted. And so together as the collective people of God, we answer the question, when, when pain seizes my soul, when suffering stares me in the faith, face, I consider the sovereign God. But there's a second response. There's a second response that emerges in verse 14. 
We not only consider the sovereign God, but we, we choose a proper response to that sovereign God. Would you look at verse 14 with me? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. How many of you would say, that's easy? <laughs> when, when the bills are paid, when there's food on the table, when the 401k is, is paying out, when, when the weather is good, when the children are obedient, when the children are compliant, when all things are well, when health is excellent, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Here's what I found. I've never met one Christian who struggles with responding joyfully to prosperity. I've never met a person who names the name of Jesus Christ, who struggles with being thankful and joyful for the good gifts that God has given him or her. The real challenge comes when the day of adversity strikes. And so on the day of prosperity, we are called on to be joyful. In the day of adversity, however, in the season of pain, we remember, we remember that God is sovereign. For verse 14 says, Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. Do you see how the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith could derive a statement that said, God ordains everything that comes to pass? For indeed, surely God has appointed the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. There is a 17th century man who I have spoken often of by the name of John Bunyan, one of my heroes. And John Bunyan had a very unique approach to adversity. If you're here this morning, you say, I want to hear it because I'm going through it. Listen to the brief story of John Bunyan, the man who was born in 1628 and died in 1688. When he was 15 years of age, do we have any 15-year-olds this morning? Anyone? A couple? Grace? Fifteen. When Bunyan's 15 years of age, his mom and his sister die within a month of each other. Now, can you imagine being a young person, being in your, your high school years, your mom dies, and less than a month later, your sisters die? In 1646, two years later, at the tender age of 17, Bunyan is drafted into the parliamentary army. Two years later, 1648, he's married. Their first child, Mary, is born blind. 1655, he's called to pastor a church in Bedford, England, outside of London. Three years later, his first wife dies. The next year, he falls in love with a lady by the name of Elizabeth. Elizabeth has a miscarriage. The next year, just after his miscarried child, he's arrested. He's taken from his pulpit, and he is imprisoned for 12 years. And he's told, Pastor Bunyan, if you will just agree to not preach the word of God, we'll let you out of prison. That's a pretty easy deal, right? All right, let me out. What does Bunyan do? He refuses. He says, listen, you let me out, I'm going to preach even stronger. I'm going to preach with even more boldness. Here's what he said, reflecting on those days. He said, our days indeed have been days of trouble. 
we began to fear cutting of throats. I want to stop right there and just have you think about that. You know, we think that we are seeing the beginnings of persecution in America, and indeed we are. But at least in the United States of America, I have yet to meet a pastor who has had his throat slit for preaching the gospel. In 17th century England, it's happening. He says, we began to fear cutting of throats, of being burned in our beds, and of seeing our children dashed in pieces before our faces. I've told you about the martyr who I keep in the flyleaf of my Bible, John Rogers. He was the first Protestant man to burn at the stake at the hands of an evil woman by the name of Mary Tudor. We refer to her these days as Bloody Mary. Well, Bunyan's going through it as well. In 1675, he's placed in prison again. And at this point, we recognize this is likely where he wrote his best-selling book, Pilgrim's Progress. 1688, he's on his way home from preaching in London, and he dies. He dies. Here's what Bunyan says before he goes to be with the Lord. He says, As no enemy can bring suffering upon a man when the will of God is otherwise, so no man can save himself out of their hands when God will deliver him up for his glory. Listen to these words. We shall or shall not suffer even as it pleaseth him. God has appointed who will suffer. Suffering comes not by chance or the will of man, but by the will and the appointment of God. I can tell you that that brings me some measure of comfort to know that God is sovereign over every suffering moment in my life. God is sovereign over every bit of pain that has come into your life. John Bunyan proved it, and many believers since then have borne that out. As we close this morning, I want to ask, and I want to be careful in the way I ask these questions, but I want to ask, what, what is your approach to adversity today? What is your approach? And I can speak candidly and say that some of the suffering that I have endured doesn't even come close to what some of you have endured or are enduring. But I can tell you if I'm honest before you, I'm supposed to be transparent, right? I'm supposed to be honest and forthright that there have been days in my Christian life where I have not responded well to suffering, where I have questioned the purposes of Almighty God, where I have never yet raise my fist to the sovereign God of the universe, but in my heart, that fist may have been raised a time or two. But there have been other times where suffering is something that I've been able to weather, where I, I read in Second Corinthians 12 that God's grace was sufficient for Paul. And God's grace, therefore, will be sufficient for me, and his grace will be sufficient for you. When disease strikes, when the rain does not fall, when the buildings do fall, 
when pain or suffering rears its ugly head, you can rest assured that nothing, absolutely nothing, will enter your life without divine permission. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, what God permits, he decrees to permit. Carl Laney said, nothing comes into our lives which was not part of God's plan. You say, I don't understand, God. You say, it doesn't make sense, God. I have asked all these questions, and I'm sure you asked them with me. But we recognize that nothing comes into our lives which was not part of God's plan. Number two, God's sovereignty and providential control will enable you to to trust him implicitly with every aspect of your life. Because you recognize that he ordains everything that comes to pass. You recognize that nothing will enter your life unless God has granted providential permission. You know, there's a great hymn writer and we sing his hymns from time to time. His name is William Cooper. And those of you, I know some of you struggle with discouragement. You struggle with melancholy. Some of you struggle with depression. And you may go so far to say, I struggle with clinical depression. William Cooper struggled with depression. And he wrote a poem one day. And I should tell you that the first time I heard this poem, it came from a friend of mine who lost his wife to brain cancer. My friend and his wife served on the mission field. He was a dear friend. And I remember one of the reasons I liked him as a high school and a college-age student is he had a ponytail. I thought, that guy's got a ponytail. He's my pal. And he's on the mission field. You know what? He took a lot of heat for that ponytail. It's unbelievable. But they became good friends of mine. And John's wife got brain cancer. And they tried everything under the sun. They tried every treatment that was available in America. They went so far to take Janice to Mexico to do some alternative treatment. And at the end of the day, nothing worked. And I remember receiving the phone call from my friend John. He said, I wanted to let you know that my wife died. But I'm comforted by the words of this poem. I had never heard the poem But I've uttered the words literally dozens of times since that day. Here's what I heard on the answering machine. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Cooper says, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's the line that did it for me. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. My friends, when when bitter providence strikes, like it did often in Cooper's life, a man who struggled with discouragement and depression, 
rest assured that God will sometimes allow his people to endure a season of adversity. And he'll do it for his glory, but he will also do it for your good. An unknown poem has written these words. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trials, shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. When we face the crook in the lot, how shall we respond? The answer is very clear in verses 13 and 14. In good times and in bad times, we should consider the sovereign God and choose a proper response to him. And at the end of the day, we can say with the Puritan writer, when the whole work shall be complete, or as I said earlier, at the, at the end of the story, at the end of the story, every particle will be seen to have fallen just into its own proper place. And all will then appear one great whole, every way worthy of God, the eternal manifestation of his glory. I have never had the opportunity to meet Johnny Erickson Tata. I certainly hope I'll have the chance to shake her hand one day, a hero of mine. But I can tell you this, all that Johnny has endured, a, a woman who is a, a quadriplegic from her teen years to even several years ago where she contracted breast cancer, she has seen more adversity than most of us will ever seen. If Johnny stood here today, she would say that God ordains everything that comes to pass. And she would also confess she doesn't know why God does everything as he did in her life. But he, she, she would rest in this, that God did it for his glory and he did it for her good. So let me encourage you. If you are enduring a difficult season, if you face a, a crook in the lot, as it were, a season of bitter providence, our God is a God of wonders. God is still in control. He is still on the throne. He is sovereign and he loves you with an everlasting love. Indeed, as Paul said in Romans 8, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Charles Bridge, the great Puritan, said, History in all its details, even the most minute, is but the working of the eternal purposes of God. My friends, my prayer today, 
is that we would embrace the fact, even though we don't understand everything, that we would embrace the fact that God is sovereign, that he ordains everything that comes to pass. And when we have difficult, a difficult time understanding that, that we affirm if he didn't ordain everything that came to pass, we would be in big trouble. I've shared in other messages how Jonathan Edwards went through a season as a teenager where he, he rallied against the sovereignty of God. He couldn't stand the sovereignty of God. He would have utterly hated this message. But then God, God, God got a hold of his heart. He regenerated his stony heart and gave him a heart of flesh. And he changed his theology. And, and slowly but surely, Edwards began to embrace the sovereignty of God to the point where he said, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. I see Edwards at his desk in his little home with his wife and his children sitting at his desk with the candle at one of his sides with a tear coming down his eye because he had lost many friends to death and disease and who knows what. And I see Jonathan Edwards wrestling with the sovereignty of God and asking questions. Why, when, how, God, it's not fair. And giving all the objections that each of us have done over and over and over in our lives. But he finally came to the point where he took out that pen and he dipped it in the ink. And he wrote the words that encourage me a multitude of times in my Christian life. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, period. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the real life stories of men like Edwards and men like William Cooper, men like John Bunyan. We thank you for men in the scripture who wrestled with adversity. We think of Paul the Apostle who battled mightily with a thorn in his flesh and he pled three times to take it away and your response was my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in weakness and so god i know that there are many today who are walking through a season of bitter providence god i pray that this passage would be a a high note in their minds that verse 13 and 14 would remind them that we are called upon to consider the sovereign God and that we are called upon to choose a proper response to you, O God, that in the day of prosperity, we rejoice, but in the day of adversity, God, we, we respond rightly by remembering the sovereignty of God. We confess we don't have all the answers, But we do know at the end of the day that your purposes are good, that you're a merciful God and you're a good God. We cling to those realities and I pray that your grace, mercy and peace would rest upon Christ fellowship today. God, for those who are not enduring a season of bitter providence, I pray that today would be a day that they can hearken back to and remember the things that we've learned together, that they would be strengthened by these great doctrinal realities. We thank you, God, 
that you're in sovereign control over all things. We thank you that you are in control of the details of our lives. Now we sing together to you, our great, our majestic, our sovereign king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.